This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. We thought he was limping because he'd injured his leg while running from one end of the RV to the other in delighted excitement over our coming home. Mac greeted us with this ritual of a mad dash every single time we entered the door. But the limp wouldn't be traced to his collision with the kitchen island. It would turn out to be the first sign that registered with us of a far deeper problem than our dearly loved canine companion. In the first half of this episode of On the Road with Mac and Molly, I'll trace our treasured days with darling Mac and his sweet-natured sibling Molly. Then in the second segment of the program, veterinarian John Morton will join us to discuss osteosarcoma, the cancer that took Mac's life. Please stay with me. I'll be back in just a few moments following these messages from our sponsors. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly, and I'm your host, Donna Haleson. 30-plus years ago, my husband Gene and I, married just a year and parents of a newborn baby girl, accepted the invitation to serve as resident directors of an educational program in Topsfield, Massachusetts. We shared a house with nine boys, a cook, a tutor, a lop-eared rabbit, and a cat. Not long after launching into our two-year tenure, we discovered our neighbors raised old English sheepdogs. On first visit, at first sight, we fell in love with these charming canines. A puppy, whom we would name Rudder, became the 15th member of our household. He was a treasure, an utter delight. So, not surprisingly, nine years ago, when Gene and I finally decided it was time to get another dog, we went in search of an OES. As no Old English was available through a rescue at the time, we were referred to a woman in Connecticut who had some puppies available. She welcomed us into her home, showed us around, introduced us to her adult dogs, and then suggested we all head to her backyard. She then yelled, come on, puppies, and out of the house tumbled what gave the appearance of being a hundred tiny black and white balls of fur. We had come with the intention of adopting one dog and had determined that we would wait to see which one would approach. When two did, we knew we were done for. Both had to come home with us. Though we all bonded immediately, Molly became especially attached to me and I to her, and Mac to Jean, and Jean to Mac. 
I remember what a treat it was on the ride home to have both of these little bundles of fur cuddled up in my lap. In later years, when they would each tip the scales at 90 plus pounds, they still expected to share that lap. We took them to puppy kindergarten, which they failed miserably. Old English, reputed to be the clowns of the dog world, are notorious for taking their sweet time to ponder whether their own counsel is best or whether they should follow the instructions of the humans who share their lives. Truth be told, however, their failure in obedience training was more our failure. We should have been more dedicated and persistent in making certain they would sit, stay, and come. In subsequent days and years, we tried bringing in other trainers, all to little avail. We finally gave up in exasperation after our experience with a woman from the School of Intimidation. She insisted our dogs needed strict discipline, so she stomped on Molly's paws and yanked on her leash to show her who was boss. Our sweet, sweet Molly yelped and looked up at us with pleading eyes. We told the quote-unquote trainer to leave and decided in that moment that we'd rather have two galumphing goofballs than two dispirited dejects. Home for Mac and Molly in their first four years was Chester County, Pennsylvania, where we shared a stucco over stone farmhouse, an Amish-made barn, and acres of green grass and gardens. The four of us spent our evenings cuddling by the open hearth fire with our cats, Bubby, Mikey, and Phoebe. The latter two never warmed up to the dogs, but Bubby let them know right from the start, that he was not one who would tolerate trifling. So at the very least, those three never had much in the way of issues. Mac and Molly spent most of their days in a 100 by 40 foot fenced-in play yard, and within those confines, they were masters of all they surveyed. Jean built them a double dog house and also what we called their jungle gym, which was an elevated platform that could be accessed by ramp or steps. It was sometimes a challenge for us to move them from the house to the play yard, as we had to head down a path and across a drive to get them there. One never knew what might be in store when taking 200 pounds plus of dog out on a leash. I should note here that though Molly's weight never exceeded 100, Monster Mac hit 110 plus. All five foot two of me, and I'm actually quite strong, would try to keep them under control whenever they took me for a walk. But another dog, a cat, a breeze, a toy, a feather, a squirrel, any little bit of anything could distract them. The prospect of taking them anywhere on a leash always called to mind the chariot race and Ben-Hur. I ended up having rotator cuff surgery and eventually ceded all on-leash duty to Jean. M&M, as we called them, had their own room at our home in Pennsylvania, a room they seemed to take great delight in trashing. I purchased two monogram dog beds from L.L. Bean. Beautiful beds, plush, stylish, gone, gone. Put them out for them one night and woke up the next morning to find pieces scattered everywhere with wisps of filler floating in the air. This pair could demolish the toughest dog toys on the market. They loved to play tug-of-war with each other, with us, and with the wicker furniture. They loved to play soccer. Mac would plant his foot on top of a ball, and when we'd kick it off, he'd race. But for all of their playfulness, M&M could not, or would not, return a ball. Another favorite activity for Mac, though not for Molly, was soaking time in his full-of-refreshing water-on-a-hot-summer-day galvanized tub. We always wondered whether Molly didn't share his interest in the tub because as a young pup, she'd fallen into a pool and had to be fished out. Well, in 2010, 
Jean and I decided to sell our cherished home in Pennsylvania to embrace life on the road. For eight years, we had lived in and lavished love upon our 18th century abode. In stress-filled hours, we'd found peace, digging in the earth, filling the house with art, celebrating and kibitzing over meals with friends and family. And it was abundantly clear that Mac and Molly also loved our country home. But as we made plans to be transplanted by the winds, we hoped they, too, would revel in some new scenery and some new adventures. We sold, stored, or gave away most of our belongings and purchased a 37-foot carriage cameo fifth wheel and a Dodge Ram 3500 truck with an extended cab. The back seats of the latter could be laid flat so M&M could stretch out or stand up in comfort. As you might imagine, there were a great many more adjustments to be made as we downsized from a four-floor house, a barn, and acreage to three rooms and a truck. Max seemed to have the most trouble adjusting. In our first days in the camper, he would run back and forth from one end of the RV to the other over and over again, seeming to mirror what he did in his Pennsylvania play yard. At first, I scolded him for this behavior, but then I realized he was just trying to adapt to his new living quarters, so I started comforting him instead, and soon he stopped his near-constant dashing. He would still, however, run from end to end when we arrived home after an absence, but this was about welcoming us home. Jean and I never failed to accept that greeting with smiles and expressions of appreciation. Beck and Molly proved to be wonderful road companions. They traveled with us down the eastern seaboard, across the south, up through the mountain states, and out to the west coast. From Washington State, we made our way down the Oregon coast and then headed back east via a route that had us traveling through California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and the Carolinas. Then we packed up again and trekked back across the country to Arizona, then back east to Florida, and then up to North Carolina, where we are at the time of this recording, now sojourning. Over these years, as I've mentioned in earlier shows, we've met fascinating people, from gold panners and a family of wild mushroom pickers in Oregon, to a moonshiner in Louisiana, from a mariachi band in Texas, to Gullah Geechee sweetgrass basket weavers in South Carolina. We've spent delight-filled days marveling at glorious natural wonders, from the majestic Grand Canyon in Arizona to the hoodoo-filled Bryce Amphitheater in Utah from the lush and soul-soothing Appalachian Mountains in Tennessee to the barren salt flats of Badwater in California's Death Valley. We've worked camped on a ranch, on a vineyard, and in a coastal RV park. I've been a guide and instructor with the Grand Canyon Field Institute and served as a tail on swamp tromps through Big Cypress. Gene has herded 250 head of cattle across eight miles of the Badlands and operated a rotary hay rake. We've risked much, but we've gained much. Along the way, we've also had a good many surprise encounters with wild animals, many of which we found in new and unanticipated habitats. Mac and Molly have shared all of these adventures, and a good many misadventures, and they've done a splendid job of keeping us on the alert for predators and other potential threats. In Colorado, we had to be on the lookout for mountain lions. In Arizona, coyotes. In Wyoming, bears. In Florida, alligators, and Burmese pythons. In South Dakota, the presenting threats were cow patties, burrow poop, plague-ridden prairie dogs, foot-piercing cacti, and boot-swallowing gumbo. 
We've learned that it's best not to allow 100-pound dogs to ingest the excrement of 1,000-pound cattle that have been injected with sundry vaccines. But I don't think I will ever get into my brain. I suppose I am choosing not to understand why dogs are so attracted to poop and all other kinds of yick. Mac and Molly love nothing better than wallowing in burrow poop on the ranch or munching on mule deer truffles at Grand Canyon or stuffing their noses into scads of assorted scat in all 30 of the states we've visited over the last five years. Squashed frogs on roadways, reefers discarded at rest areas, decaying fish on the beach, ready to strike rattlers. The pair would be after these in a trice. It's no wonder veterinarians we met along the way always suggested we protect our M&M with snake and lepto vaccines. Well, sad to say, poop wasn't the only questionable food of choice for Mac. He also had a great love for chocolate, and we had to be very careful about keeping such treats out of his reach. I failed at this a couple of times and returned home to find his heart racing a mile a minute and his breath smelling of the sweet stuff. Also, sad to say, Molly wasn't beyond serving as a lookout for Mac. When we exited our truck for just a moment at Dante's View in Death Valley National Park, Mac made short work of a bag of artisan cheeses I'd foolishly left on the floor of the front seat. Molly sat behind the wheel, smiling broadly, while he pilfered the premium provender. Mac and Molly caused a commotion wherever we went. Folks would cluster about us, whether we were parked or in parks, asking to have their photos taken with the dogs, petting them, asking endless questions about them. And if the pair were out and about, they would elicit lots of hysterical laughter as they engaged in mock combat or raced along with their sides closely touching. Mac would always sit up straight in a chair in the same way a person does. He'd sit at table with his paws on the surface, looking like he was waiting to be served a cup of coffee. In the RV, he had his own special chair that he would leap into and dig his claws into when he was getting up. He could and did shake the entire RV with his breathing and rocking. We purchased a special mitt for him, as he was also quite the drooler and drippy drinker. He would spray liquid all over the house if you didn't head him off. All this we forgave. I'll never forget how... When I was under extreme stress with work, Mac licked his right paw down to the skin till it was bleeding. When I resigned from the position, it was causing all the distress, and returned to health. He stopped the behavior. He never did it again. This, I believe, speaks to the bond we had. In his body, he gave expression to the turmoil I was feeling within. I imagine we all appreciate friends who come alongside to share in our pain. Mac certainly did that with me. He and Molly helped me move through that difficult time in ways I probably still don't fully comprehend. Over our years on the road, Jean and I sometimes plant ourselves in an RV park central to an area we want to explore. When we're in that mode, we do our exploring and then move on to another place, often after just a few days. We have also, as I mentioned earlier on, enjoyed the occasional seasonal work camping. We were on such an assignment in Big Cypress, Florida, when we began to notice a change in Mac. He started to limp, and when Jean shaved him and Molly down so that they might better acclimate to the heat and humidity of the swamp, we noticed a protuberance on the elbow of his right leg. An x-ray subsequently revealed that Mac had contracted cancer, osteosarcoma. Our veterinarian, John Morton of the Golden Gate Animal Clinic in Naples, showed us copies of the film, 
and it was clear to see where the bone had been eaten away by the disease. Mac seemed to suffer a sharp decline almost immediately after the diagnosis, and Dr. Morton told us the tumors might well have already spread to his chest. He reviewed with us our options, but given Mac's age, the placement of the tumor, and the aggressive nature of the cancer, we ruled out amputation. As the days went by, Mac had a harder time walking on the leg, and he couldn't always control his bladder or bowels. His appetite and thirst, however, never waned. Over these days, we cried, and we cried, and we cried, and we cuddled with our Mac. Molly spent time each day comforting Mac by licking between his eyes. She did this so often that Mac developed a brown patch on his face from the enzymes conveyed from her mouth. We are now quite certain that she and Mac knew well before we that this illness would take Mac's life. In the second segment of this program, John Morton will join us to uh, talk about osteosarcoma, its signs and symptoms and treatments. It's a horrible disease, presenting the most common primary bone tumor in canines, accounting for 85% of all malignancies originating in the skeleton. In this segment, John and I will walk as well through Mac's last days. I hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly. I'm your host, Donna Haleson. And joining us now from his home office in Naples, Florida, is Dr. John Morton. Welcome, John. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us today, and again, we're just very grateful to have you on the program. As I'd mentioned uh, earlier on, Dr. Morton is on staff at the Golden Gate Animal Clinic in Naples and was the veterinarian who diagnosed Mac and cared for him in the days that followed. I'd like to begin our conversation by retracing some of that history. What was it about Mac that led you to suspect he had developed a canine cancer? Well, when I first saw him, my, my biggest concern was the, the discomfort that he had. He had the associated swelling combined with the location on his leg and his age. Kind of all of those things together had me concerned about it. And I think that was one of the things that, you know, that we had talked about before I even took him out of, out of the room for further diagnostics. 
As I looked back at photographs taken of Mac in the days prior to your diagnosis, and knowing what I now know, I think he had developed the osteosarcoma well before our first visit. I actually was looking back and I could see a shift in his eyes. There was even a a different way in which he was walking. And you ended up taking x-rays on that day. And can you describe what you saw there? Yeah, so on, on his x-rays, and he had a, a pretty significant bone swelling associated with that. And um, when we took our x-rays, one of the things I look for, especially for something like osteosarcoma, is uh, evidence of bone destruction. And he had pretty significant bone destruction on, on his distal radius and the cortex, so the outside part of the bone that gives the bone most of its stability, a lot of that had been destroyed. And that was you know, one of the main things that you know, led to the suspicion of an osteosarcoma. As you, as you look back now, how long do you suspect he would have had that cancer? You know, it's really hard to say. I, I know the first time, you know, when I met him, it would probably have been about a month or so after the initial time that he came in for limping. And when he first came in for limping, there really wasn't any of that, that swelling that was noted. So it's definitely something that had been there, you know, at least a month by the time I saw him. It had probably been there a little bit longer. But the thing about osteosarcoma is it's very, very quickly growing and very aggressive. So it could have been potentially a few weeks before, but from a microscopic level to a gross level, I don't know exactly where that is. Sonny, I can hear this must be your puppy in the background. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, one of the things about doing a program on Pet Life Radio is that this sort of thing is expected. (laughs) So I have my Molly sitting next to me here as well, but she's a whole lot quieter than your little one. (laughs) Well, you know, I wonder if you might run through some of the options that you presented to us in the way of possible treatments with MAC. Yeah, there really are a lot of options. You know, unfortunately, with things like osteosarcoma, is the, our life expectancy is typically fairly poor no matter what option we choose. Um, and those options vary greatly depending on what type of cancers we're dealing with. But, um, you know, the conversation that, you know, you and your husband and I talked about were everything ranging from doing our best to control pain because it's a very, very painful cancer to as far as amputation and potentially even chemotherapy. And those are just the the basic options. There are even more options beyond that that are currently being explored as far as additional surgeries and options like that. But, you know, the ones that you and I mostly talked about were, well, you know, we got a 110-pound dog. Do we consider amputation or do we just talk about pain control, you know, knowing what what kind of life and what quality of life we're going to be having with him? And knowing him, and again, as big as he was, and acknowledging the changes that we'd seen in him, even in just the days prior to that day of diagnosis, we just couldn't bring ourselves to authorize an amputation. And uh, I was astonished, really, at just how quickly he seemed to decline after that. It was really only about two months before we knew that we would have to bring him in to be euthanized. And one thing, though, that really struck me in the midst of all of this is that I watched Molly in the last days with Mac sit with him for just, it seemed, hours at a time and licking him between his eyes to the point that the enzymes from her mouth began to stain his forehead. And I I wonder if you would think, or if there has been any research into this, about the ways in which dogs may detect within other dogs the presence of a, of a cancer or a serious illness. Because I really wonder if Molly and Mac didn't know well before we did that he wasn't going to be with us for very much longer. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I see all the time dogs that have been together for, you know, years or, or in Mac and Molly's case, their entire life, where, you know, particularly in the, in the days leading up to it or even afterwards, where the, the dog that's left behind does very poorly. You know, I've, I've had clients whose dogs haven't eaten or eaten very poorly for weeks after the death of a dog, um, or they notice them being a little bit clingy even before. So, and, you know, I don't know if, if the research has been done, you know, in dog to dog, but, you know, there are dogs out there that have been trained to detect cancers in people, melanomas and things like that. So there probably is a, a sense there, even if they don't really understand what that sense is, that something is off. And when you have dogs that are so close, you know, they really bond to each other. And I think they really get each other and really know each other really well and know more about each other than I think that we know about our animals. So they're really tuned into that. And it's just, it's always amazing to me how those, how they bond with each other. And I mean, and, and you saw that with, with Mac and Molly. They were absolutely devoted to each other. I mentioned earlier in the program that Molly, as Jean was taking Mac off in the truck to, uh, to go to your office, Molly let out a cry that was different from anything I think we'd ever heard. And she sat by the window for about an hour after the truck moved out of sight. So I really do think that there was some knowledge there. And she did for a few days not eat as well as she would ordinarily. But she seems to have adjusted already, which sort of surprises me. I know that you have your own dogs, and I assume you would not have entered your profession if you didn't have a love for dogs. And so I would imagine administering the shot that will end an animal's life must be among the most challenging or it must be the most challenging aspect of your work. And I wonder if you'd share some of your thoughts on this and, uh, and tell us a bit about how you prepare to help yourself through and to help folks move through this extraordinarily wrenching experience. It definitely can be a very hard thing to do. And, you know, for me, honestly, it's not the hardest thing that I do on a daily basis or, or weekly basis. To me, when we have an animal like Mac or, or whatever, whoever it is who's in a terminal situation and who's either very, very painful or has a very poor quality of life or, you know, is losing weight and can't keep food down and is not living the quality of life that we want, to me, it's kind of the least selfish thing that we can provide for our animals. Unfortunately, to me, it's not something that we can provide for people, but giving them that kind of ultimate sacrifice, it's something that we do for them. It's not something we necessarily do for ourselves. And having the option of allowing an animal to go smoothly and painlessly and without seeing it coming, to me, that can be kind of a release for them. So it can be difficult. And to be honest, I've had a couple days where you know, I've had to do, you know, two or three or one particularly hard euthanasia in a day. Um, but to me, it's not the hardest thing. You know, being honest, the hardest thing that I probably have to deal with on a daily basis is animals that need care and when the owners can't afford it. Uh, I think that's harder than euthanasia. Those two things can be tied together sometimes when I have a condition that might be treatable, but at either great expense or a great amount of time. And sometimes euthanasia is the best alternative. And those ones are a little bit harder or the young dogs are harder. And that's one of the things that I kind of talk to owners about when it's time to euthanize is we have that quality of life discussion. And if their pet's not living the quality of life that they want them to have, or then I think that that decision becomes not easy, uh, not easy by any means, but a little bit easier to accept. 
because nobody wants their animals to live in pain. And, you know, for an animal like Mac, he probably could have he could have continued to live on for potentially weeks or months, but not in a quality of life that we want him to have. I mean, you know, he could barely put his foot down and, you know, he just wasn't himself. So, you know, like I said, it's not the, the most difficult thing I have to do because most of the animals that we end up putting to sleep are ones that really need it. And to me, it's a it's a medical therapy. It's kind of the ultimate medical therapy to end pain and end suffering. You were talking about euthanasia not being the most difficult thing that you attend to on a given day. One of the things that particularly struck Jean is that Max seemed to leave with just a sigh. And I found that very comforting. And it is a difficult decision to... Uh, make for uh, any loved one, and I've had to make a similar decisions in the past that have that have been very very painful. But uh, you know, as you say, this um, is sometimes the uh, sort of the final I don't know end of life choice, I guess that uh, that will sometimes need to be made. I've read that cancer is the leading cause of death in dogs over the age of ten, but Mac was a few months short of nine when he was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. I understand also that osteosarcoma is the most common primary bone tumor, accounting for 85% of all malignancies originating in the skeleton with the limbs, accounting for 75% to 85% of all affected bones. Now, this particular cancer seems to hit dogs at a younger age, this osteosarcoma, a median of seven. Do I have my statistics correct? And what percentage of dogs will develop cancer? And what beyond osteosarcoma are the most common cancers that afflict them? Uh, yeah, most of those percentages sound about right. It's going to kind of depend on what studies you read and, and who you talk to. Those statistics will vary a little bit. You know, osteosarcoma is unfortunately one of those ones that seems to hit dogs a little bit younger than average. Mac was a very large breed and the larger the dogs, especially in osteosarcoma, then it tends to get them a little bit earlier. It's also, you know, very common in Rottweilers because they are also a very large breed dog. And I would say that a lot of the dogs that we see that are older, 10, 12, 14 plus, that end up uh, either being euthanized or dying at home, I would say that a majority of them have some sort of cancer, whether we know that it's there or not. You know, sometimes we can't diagnose it because further diagnostics are not an option. If, you know, ultrasound is too expensive or referral to an oncologist or an internist is too expensive or it's not available in the area because it's, you know, we're very lucky in Naples that we have multiple specialty hospitals within a reasonable drive. So that option is a little bit more available to us. But there are some dogs where, you know, they continue to decline and we might not know why, but that suspicion often is that there is a cancer somewhere in there. I think if our dogs are... If we're lucky enough to have our dogs live long enough, then they will probably get cancer, not unlike, you know, people who hit the age of 80 or 90 or even more than that. A lot of them have gone through some sort of cancer treatment, you know, and there are some dogs that are predisposed to those types of certain types of cancers. Some golden retrievers are kind of the, the poster child for, for cancers both things like lymphoma or hemangiosarcoma. Rottweilers are kind of the poster child for osteosarcoma is what Mac had. Um, and then there's different breed variations with them. And then, of course, there's lots of dogs that don't like to read the textbooks and um, can pop up with things that we just we don't expect. Um, osteosarcoma, I would say, is one of our common ones, but not our most common cancer. 
I would guess that the most common cancer I probably see, uh, luckily, is mast cell tumors. And these are tumors that typically originate either in the skin or just underneath the skin. And they can range really greatly in, in how malignant they are. And that varies a little bit between dogs and cats as well. We do see a fair amount of lymphoma in dogs. And there's various other type of cancers that are kind of mixed in there as well. What are some of the symptoms that indicate the presence of cancer? That also varies extraordinarily greatly. Um, you know, with Mac, we had limping and swelling, and when it initially started as a limp, you know, some cancers might present as a little lump or a bump underneath the skin, and their animal might not have any other clinical signs associated with it, except that the owner was petting that pet one day and happened to notice this little this little lump. And we can have signs that are much more generic than that and very, very nonspecific. Intermittent diarrhea can be a sign. Um, Anemia, so a low circulating red blood cell count can be a sign. You know, if you have a cancer affecting the kidneys, we can have kidney failure where the animal drinks and pees a lot. So it's there's a, such a wide range, it's really difficult to kind of put it into a small category because it varies so greatly depending on exactly what the diagnosis ends up being. It's interesting that you should mention that pet owners may be the ones all of a sudden who feel a lump around a particular area. We had shaved Mac down. And of course, with a with an old English sheepdog, you've got this mass of fur that, you know, so very hard to see under all of that, you know, that in fact, there was this and he had, he had banged his leg on the side of, of the kitchen island. And after that noticed him starting to uh, starting to limp. But I, I looked back at some of the photographs of him when he was a puppy. And you had told me that where this osteosarcoma appeared was in what's called the wrist on the dog. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. Okay. So I noticed that in those early pictures of Mac, it seemed to protrude at the wrist in ways that I didn't see in Molly or in his other leg. So I sort of wondered if there could be any sort of an earlier indication that there might be a problem with that part of the body. Well, it's it's a possibility. You know, looking back at him on a puppy, I don't think there's any way we would have been able to say that this is likely going to happen. There have been studies that have shown in the cases of osteosarcoma that they can be associated with trauma, fractures, for example, you know, broken bones, even sometimes medical implants. So bone plates, bone screws. Uh, I think what happens is those implants, they cause a lot of inflammation. And with inflammation, comes DNA damage. And that tends to be the underlying the underlying issue with a lot of cancers is, well, these cells are overpopulating and they're reproducing unnecessarily because there's something wrong with the DNA inside those cells. So, you know, in theory, and this is kind of just a guess, but if he had had some sort of trauma or long-standing trauma in that location, it's a possibility. But that being said, the location in which he developed cancer is a very common location for that type of cancer. So, you know, whether those two things are related, I don't think we'll ever know. I wasn't going to necessarily mention this, but it, I'm recalling a time in my life when I was under a particularly powerful period of stress. And Mac, in that time, started licking that same leg where he developed the cancer to the point where he had it um, down. So all of the fur was gone and you could see, you know, that he had, uh, he had licked it all the way down to almost to the bone. And I don't even know, I guess the question that I would ask about this, but uh, 
how would you relate that, I, I suppose is my question, to the cancer that eventually took him? If I had to guess, I would probably call it a coincidence. You know, it's really hard to say, you know, osteosarcoma is of the bone, superficial, you know, licking trauma, um, acrolic granulomas that can happen uh, are probably not going to have that effect. Even animals that have things like bone implants, their incidences of cancers are very, very low in proportion to the number of animals that have implants and, and don't get those cancers. I think what I see a lot with pet owners is whether it's something like cancer or or whatever the diagnosis ends up being is that you end up kind of having this hindsight where you look back on all these things and wonder if, you know, if this didn't happen, could we have changed it? Or if I noticed this, you know, a year ago, would this would have changed it? And I think people end up kind of dwelling on that when in reality, there's nothing that necessarily could have been done when most of those things are most likely, again, not a guarantee, because nothing's really a guarantee in science and medicine, but those things are likely to be a coincidence. I wasn't thinking of it as a as causative, but wondering if that was a weak part of his body, I suppose, where he, I don't know, let out the, the tension that he was feeling. So I'm not really quite certain what relationship I would find in the midst of all of that, but I just found, just found it uh, quite coincidental, I guess we'll put it that way. I wonder if there are preventative measures that folks can take early on in a, in a dog's life. As far as preventative measures, you know, it, it's really, really hard to say. Um, there's, and it depends on who you ask because, you know, people will kind of complain or, or blame a lot of the drugs that we use nowadays on cancers. Um, a lot of heartworm preventatives, flea preventatives saying that they're toxic and things like that. But there's really no data to suggest that at this time. Granted, science changes all the time and they're doing studies on these things all the time. There's some information about out there that people are really looking into as far as early spaying and neutering and what kind of effect that has, you know, long term on the physiology of the body and the mechanics of the body because they're starting to suggest maybe we should change the way that we do things a little bit. But it's not definitive and it doesn't cover all breeds. You know, as a veterinarian, you know, my first gut instinct as far as, you know, preventative measures is that yearly physical exam. You know, uh, not that I'm trying to get everybody to come spend their money with me, but having someone who looks at animals all day and puts their hands on them, you know, are, we're trained to maybe notice things that are maybe subtle or that you didn't notice at home. Um, you know, granted, I, I tend to defer to owners a lot because nobody knows their animal better than they do, especially personality wise. But it's not uncommon for me to get in with an animal and I can, you know, I can pop their kneecaps out of place. And the owners have had the dog five, six years and and never knew it before. So really having someone else, you know, someone who can do that physical, get their hands on their animal and and talk about those things. You know, if I find a lump or a bump, you know, what do we do about it? Should we take a peek at it? Um, What is that next step in diagnostics? I think that really is the best thing that you can do, because if you can catch things early, depending on the type of cancers we're dealing with, you can definitely prolong not only survival, but, you know, good quality survival. Um, And I think to me, I don't want quantity at the expense of quality. That's not my goal. So I think if we can catch things early, that's definitely really good. You know, you got to keep your dog or cat on a good plane of nutrition, you know, up to date on vaccines and all that stuff. But even if you decide that, you know, vaccines are toxic and you hate heartworm preventatives, at least, you know, getting in once a year to kind of get a checkup to make sure everything is going well. You know, a dog's life that is 12 or 14 years, you know, six months or a year is not the same as six months or a year in, in people time. So a lot can change in that amount of time. So a cancer diagnosis is not necessarily a death sentence. I think that's something that's important to touch on here. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it definitely depends on what type of cancers we're dealing with. You know, earlier I mentioned mast cell tumors, um, very common cancers that happen in the skin. They can happen elsewhere as well. That's one of the reasons why anytime somebody finds a lump or a bump on their pet, I, I recommend that we, we do something about it to find out what it is. Because something like a mast cell tumor, if we can surgically excise it, that's often curative. There are some other types of cancers that surgery and combined with more advanced therapies, you know, you can get months to years additional out of an animal that if you couldn't, if you didn't treat that you wouldn't have. Even things like lymphoma, those can go into remission for six months or two or three years or even longer, uh, depending on what type and where it is and what kind of what kind of animal you have. So it's definitely not a death sentence by any means. But again, it does vary greatly as to the breed and the type of cancer and even the location within a cancer type. You know, if a melanoma happens, if it happens in one location over another one, it can be more malignant and more aggressive in one location over the other one. Can you, and I, I don't know if, if you really can get hold of this, but I'm wondering about estimated costs and likelihood of success with uh, the range of treatments that are out there for cancer, especially if the cancer is caught early enough. Can you address that? It costs? Yeah, to, to a certain extent, you know, again, depending on what we're dealing with, you know, so a case like MAC, for example, and it also depends on the area of the country you're in and, and whether you're dealing with a general practitioner like myself or a surgical specialist or an oncologist, because uh, those costs are going to be a little bit different. You know, to do something like an amputation on, on MAC probably would have been between $1,000 and $2,000 through us, maybe would have been twice that or so through a specialist. That would not have gotten us a whole lot more time with him unless we decided to do further therapy. You know, chemo and chemotherapy and radiation is is not the same as it is in people. And I often have that discussion is that dogs, dogs are awesome creatures and they, they tolerate those therapies much, much better than people do. Um, you know, they don't lose all their hair and have vomit and diarrhea all over the place. It's, it's much better tolerated. But, you know, I, we do have clients who have the ability to spend lots of money if they need to. So depending on the type of cancer, something like lymphoma, if you're deciding to do chemotherapy, could be thousands of dollars, you know, four, five, six or more. If you're excising a small mast cell tumor from a dog, then, you know, it might be $500 or $1,000. It varies greatly. There are some splenic tumors that need to have the spleen removed. You know, through us, that might be around $1,500 or $2,000. It's never a, a cheap disease. Unless you're kind of going for palliative care, you know, you want to control pain and control inflammation, then it's less expensive to do that way than to go all the way through. But that price can be, you know, hundreds of dollars to $10,000 if you have the ability to spend it. Well, again, you're talking about situations varying greatly with every dog that you encounter, but I wonder if you might have some general advice, maybe some words of wisdom that you would offer to folks who are faced with a canine cancer diagnosis. You know, take a deep breath. I would say that's the first thing that that we need to do. You know, I remember talking to you and your husband and coming back at the room after our x-rays and throwing a whole lot of information at you. Here are options A, option B, option C. So I, I think that, you know, taking a deep breath and sometimes taking a day or two to kind of think about things can really help clear your mind as far as helping people determine what they want to do next. People need to know that there are options out there if, they're, if they are willing and able to do so. I do realize that pet medical costs can be quite expensive. 
that it is something that could potentially be treated and you can get a good quality of life out of, but often knowing that depending on the cancer type, you know, things are, you know, our, our quality of life is potentially limited. But I think knowing your options and, and talking to a vet that you're comfortable with is probably the most important things that we can do. Well, we were very grateful to have had you walking with us from the diagnosis through to the end with Mac. You were always willing to take a call. You offered a range of options. You blessed us with uh, words of comfort. And you supported us in the very difficult decisions that we had to make along the way. I would ask further, I guess, if there are words of advice that you would offer to other veterinarians who are walking with families or will walk with families through end-of-life issues with their animal companions. You know, that's that's kind of a hard thing. You know, a lot of a lot of people do things very differently. And, you know, what I try to do is give people options and, and try to be there as much as possible. And obviously, it, it's a little bit difficult depending on what kind of practice you're in. You and I played phone tag there for about two weeks trying to get to back and forth with each other. So, you know, I, I've gone through this not with you guys, but also with a close friend of mine whose dog had cancer and, and my mom's dog as well. So, you know, I always try to be as available as possible because it sometimes, even if you don't have lots of questions to ask, you need to kind of have someone to bounce ideas off of and, and kind of ask if it's okay to feel a certain way or if it's okay to do a certain treatment or what our opinions are. So, I mean, to me, if, if I could pass along anything, I would say, you know, just kind of listen carefully and um, try to give people options. And I do my best to return those phone calls. They can be pretty hard sometimes, but I try to make sure I do that as well. Well, I thank you for your persistence. <laughs> it, it paid off and we're able to have the conversations that were really so helpful to us in the midst of all of this. Well, I wonder if there's anything else that you want to mention as we close out our time together? You know, I, I think we've covered a lot of things. Obviously, if anybody has any concerns about something on their pet that, you know, I, I recommend don't waiting. There are a lot of lumps and bumps that can happen in dogs that are benign, not cancer. But unfortunately, I, I don't have magic hands and no veterinarian does. And we can't always tell just by looking or feeling it. There are a lot of benign things out there like lipomas, but we don't know unless we take a sample. And one of those things to think about, I mean, unfortunately, we couldn't do with MAC because the type of cancer it is. But something like a fine needle aspirate is a very non-invasive and fairly inexpensive way to look and diagnose different types of cancers. If there's any concerns, you know, get that animal looked at. It's much easier to excise a small tumor than a large one. We get better quality of life if things are things are caught early. So really, that's my, my biggest piece of advice is if, if anybody has any concerns or even if you don't, and it's been two or three years since your dog or cat for that matter has been to the vet because they've been nice and healthy. You know, we're trying to kind of pick up those small things and that physical exam really is really important. Thank you, Dr. Morton, for being with us today. And thank you most especially for the gentle and caring way in which you walked with Mac, Molly, Jean, and me. If listeners today have any questions or comments about this program, I'd invite you to contact me via the email address you'll find on the Pet Life Radio website. As Mac is no longer with us, I've decided to close out the On the Road series with this episode. But this won't be the last you'll hear from me on Pet Life Radio, as we'll soon be launching a new program, Wildlife, Wild Places. The focus of the show will be on wildlife and animal companions and the human beings who have come alongside to partner, to save, to preserve, to conserve, and to advocate. You can expect shows on wild horses, sea turtles, unusual animal friendships, the research being conducted into habitat soundscapes that speak to us about the health of these environments. 
tales of my encounters with wildlife and national parks and other natural spaces, and of course, much more. I hope you'll be looking for the program as it launches, and I hope you'll join me as we come alongside wildlife and explore wild places. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.